Hello, travelers. This is Sophie Kaner. And this is Kevin Vibert. And today we are doing our very special mid-season question and answer session with, as promised, a special guest host. Mm-hmm. So for this question and answer session, we thought it would be sort of fun if instead of speaking with somebody who's a part of the production, um, we spoke to somebody who isn't, somebody who is a listener of the show, somebody who maybe can stand in for all of you. And so we heard about someone who is sort of a guru as far as the show is concerned, and that's who we're talking with today. So welcome, Erinmark. Um, who will be asking us the questions. Hi, Ernmark. Hi, thank you so much for having me here today. <laughs> thank you so much for coming. <laughs> yeah, we're so pumped to talk with you. So I know that you've compiled the list of questions and we know a little bit of what to expect, but not everything. Mm-hmm. So um, why don't you, maybe, maybe you can tell us and the listeners who aren't already aware of you um, <laughs> a little bit about yourself and then we'll dive into the questions. I... I have written a whole lot of fanfic for this series, <laughs> uh, and I study the scripts really hard and just put together a lot of meta, mostly for writing my fanfic. You probably know more about it than we do. That's entirely possible. <laughs> Honestly, half the stuff I'm seeing is probably just stuff that's in my own head, so... <laughs> probably the show that's in your head is better than the one that we wrote. <laughs> Isn't that the way with, like, all fandom, though? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. You're a thousand percent correct. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, great. So what do you have for us? Okay. Let's start with an easy one. What's the single most satisfying aspect of creating a show like The Penumbra? I I think for me, one of the... I've said this before, but I will say it as many times as it's tolerated. Uh, The One of the, the biggest things for me is the collaborative process with, like, all the people that we work with. Uh, the short form version of this answer that I always go back to because I think it's the most like concrete version is I remember when I first uh, asked my brother to make theme music for Juno for us. Uh, the thing that I described was just to put it very shortly, not even a little bit what he sent us. <laughs> I asked for something like smoky and like kind of saxophony, and he was like, Kevin, I don't play the saxophone. Right. I was going to say he doesn't play the saxophone. I said, yeah, but like evoke a saxophone. <laughs> There's a reason I'm not the musician. Um, and uh, the thing that he brought us was totally different, but I remember at the end of the process of the original Murderous Mask listening to that and going like, oh, this is the emotional note of this show. Like, I didn't find that. That wasn't me. It was somebody else doing his own thing, and that uh, then I could use that as a target to shoot for. So really the coolest thing for me is, like, coming in with my ideas that I like but are clearly just mine. Uh, and as they, like, collide with everybody else's, they become something that I genuinely don't recognize. Mm. No, that is really wonderful. Well, I think to stay on brand... If you're coming from a place of love, I should come from a place of anger. And and I think for me, for right now, for picking um, one aspect of creating the show that is very satisfying to me, it's that when I consume other media or when I am unable to find media that satisfies me and there are things that make me really angry and things that I'm looking for that I've been so let down by, I can just go and say, oh, well, I'll just put it in my show Mm -hmm. and then be satisfied. So whenever, you know, I see a movie or a show and I really regret the way that it turns out, 
um, or I feel that someone didn't do justice to a character, or I think there should have been a certain kind of representation, or I'm really tired of a particular trope and I'd like to see that turned on its head, then I just go to Kevin and I'm like, oh, put that in this one. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That does happen a bit. A lot of how this show happens is I just go to Kevin and I'm like, yeah, put that in this. (laughs) Uh, And he does it. Yeah, those are all the best parts, though, so good on you. <laughs> that actually brings me to the question of um like working together co-authoring a story like that's complicated like how do you guys go about doing that whole process mm. i mean it's different now obviously than it was when we started because we now already have the universe and the characters so mm-hmm. the process is uh, naturally it's very different than it used to be mm-hmm. um and that is a lot of how it goes. I mean, it's it's not always that I just get mad about things and then demand things from Kevin, although that is a lot of how it goes. And also how our lives are lived in general. Um, but, you know, we, we both do this as we both notice things out in the world. And then we're like, oh, I'd like to put that in the show. And so we're we're sort of planning. We could be planning seasons ahead. And then we have all of these seeds of ideas that we would like to happen eventually. Um, and then once it gets closer to the time, we start building those and connecting them to actual characters and seeing how they're going to fit into the story arcs that we already have going. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how we begin to brainstorm. And then Kevin has a lot more to do with the drafting mm-hmm. process. Well, I think that like uh, one of the most useful ways to think about what what we each bring to the writing process is Sophie cannot say this about herself, so I will say it about her very happily. <laughs> Uh, Sophie is a visionary, by which I mean... Oh, you can say that as much as you want. (laughs) Sophie's a visionary, (laughs) by which I mean very often she will, like, see a thing that she knows needs to be in there, but cannot necessarily articulate why. And if, like, working with her, that is deeply, deeply infuriating. (laughs) Uh, One of the best best examples, because the way this tends to shake out is that Sophie will make a demand. I will go, what are you talking about? That is not what this episode is about. I'll start writing the script, and five minutes later, I'll go like, no, she was right. That's exactly what needs to be here. Um, uh, uh, Probably the most clear-cut example of that is in Lesson Learned, uh, when uh, Juno's old wedding dress is referenced. That came about because Sophie, like, we, we we knew about Juno's backstory, so that aspect of it didn't come out of nowhere. But... Sophie wanted a wedding dress to come up. And I remember I'd I been, was such a pest. <laughs> I was stuck on lesson learned for like a month and a half to two months. And she comes at me with journeys to have a wedding dress. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's in a prison with a crew with a crazy teacher. What? Why would there be a dress? Like, he needs to mention the wedding dress. And then like a week later, Kevin, did you put the wedding dress in yet? And, and he was like, no, there's nowhere for it to go. And I was like, put it in a metaphor. <laughs> And very sheepishly, I did, and it, like, tied that scene together. And I'll never forgive you for it. So, yeah, it's it's me being a pest is so, how it works. A lot of the way it ends up shaking out is that, like, Sophie has really, really big, really, really excellent ideas. And then, like, the thing that I am better at is the ground level making the plot tick. Yeah, the nuts and bolts and, like, the plot beats and, yeah. like piecing things together like i could never tell you how to get from point a to point b you know like how would we get there even i would have no idea i'm just like well it just needs to happen so make it happen Mm. um and kevin is sort of miraculous at that 
I, because I would just have no idea. I mean, like if, if I were to do the show on my own, it would have no legs whatsoever. Like it just, I could never, I could never do it. Um, but he somehow like executes impossible things. So yeah, I've come at him over the now, now I can say over the years, over the plural years, I've come at him with things like he needs to mention the wedding gown and Juno's going to walk out on Nereev, you know, so, and then, then he makes it work. So. And thank you for that wedding dress detail because that that was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were pretty excited about it. And you know, Juno looked great in it. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's canon. Can confirm that. Yeah. You looked great. <laughs> Speaking of some of the art in this in this series, like holy crap. I know. Uh, how have Michaela's designs like influenced the the direction of the story and like how have like the actors and the voice actors like influenced where the, the story is going to go? Mm, that's a really good question. It's definitely I mean it's been interesting because right Michaela didn't get involved until like near the end of the first season, so obviously she was interpreting the characters after the fact um at that point, but then she started getting involved as we were building out the second citadel so she is a much bigger influence on those Mm -hmm. characters you know for example like the visual design of um lord aram is all her is all her and like she brought us that design and then you know kevin basically wrote a description of it you know um so that was very different and you know speaking to what kevin said earlier about like the joys of collaboration Mm -hmm. i mean that's wonderful Right. I remember one of the first uh, one of the first drawings that she ever showed us of uh, Lord Arm had like he had a he had a, a piercing in his like what do you call that a frill I guess sure <laughs> in, in his in his lizard royalty ruff <laughs> he had a, he had a piercing in it and I remember that like up until that point I had like I I knew the major beats we wanted him to go through because we had talked about it so much but I had no idea what he sounded like and I remember for some reason that piercing ended up solidifying a lot of his voice for me in terms of this, like, you know, very haughty, like he clearly cares Fancy. about his appearance. Fancy, right? <laughs> yeah. The other character this happened for, just to complete the Noah Syme streak, is uh, now that we're safely far away from it, I can say it, but when we brought Nereev back at the end of season one, you and I had a very hard time figuring out his voice when he wasn't Rex Glass right? for like for months it took right. us forever he had only been rex until then then we were like oh my god that was a disguise so he can't just talk the same way right so i remember like it i eventually eventually we figured it out but it was like it was never super comfortable it was it was doing an imitation until um until i saw her design for Nerev, and then i was like oh it's easy i just imagined that guy talking <laughs> um and that is that has always been one of the coolest parts about having official designs for me. Yeah, it is. It is really cool. The influence it has back on us. Um, and then um, it's a little bit different with working with the actors because it sort of develops over time. And I mean, the biggest example of this is, of course, Juno. And I think we talked about that a little bit in the season one Q&A. And I, in fact, recently listened back to Prince of Mars, which given that we redid murderous mask prince of mars is now in some ways like the oldest Mm -hmm. juno episode that we have and juno's very different Mm -hmm. then because he's a lot more just what he was on the page at the time which was then really not that much more than just a noir detective right 
you know, we hadn't really figured out what more than that mm-hmm. he was going to be. And like, he's such a goober now. <laughs> like, he's such a goober, but he wasn't. He wasn't at the beginning at all. Right. So that's, you know, again, like this back and forth of Kevin developing the voice of the character, you know, with also my influence of like what I wanted to have happened to the character. And also like increasingly he is Joshua, right? who is a goober. And like, you know, and, and a lot of lines, you know, I'll, I'll be reading an early version of the script and I'll laugh and Kevin will be like, I mean, yeah, that's just a thing that Joshua would say. Right. Well, I mean, I think a lot of that influence literally comes from the fact that when we first started the show, I didn't know Joshua very well at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, just obviously have spent uh, quite a de- quite a great deal of time with him over the last two years. Right. And like, and now, and, and also now you like hear his voice. Yeah. Even, even if he's not in the same room, I spend a lot of time with him <laughs> <laughs> because it's a lot of time listening to his voice actually and imagining his voice. Right. So like, instead of imagining the character and then someone else interprets it over time, you hear their voice yep. in your head and then put that down on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's pretty wonderful. It really is. Yeah. You guys have some really distinctive voices and I, I love that. Oh, it's been fun over time to develop a style both i mean not that kevin didn't always have a writing style but um that in conjunction with i feel like i've developed a directorial style Mm -hmm. that um is very much related to his writing style which is we always call it cartoony and this isn't necessarily the style for all audio dramas but it's in the way kevin writes and in the way that i direct that just about every character is meant to be very over the top Mm -hmm. um, and very extra. And a lot of times they're impressions of certain people or certain character types. And yeah, they're all, they're always meant to be very over the top, very dramatic in very different ways so that you can tell them apart. And just to, to like give a certain like comic booky or cartoony vibe to the show. Mm Mm-hmm. We sometimes refer to them as like audio cartoons, right? Like that's the yes. big broad strokes. Which is also at. how I, I'm sorry, this wasn't even really a question. <laughs> I'm just answering your non-question. It's also sometimes how I justify the level of violence that sometimes comes up on the show. Right. Where I personally, I tend not to really like violence in shows, but I... I justify it on our show in that I sort of see it as a cartoon. I don't really take the violence that seriously. You know, so it's like, in a cartoon, I would feel okay about exploding a cat. (laughs) You know, whereas, like, I might not feel that great about watching it live action. (laughs) Um, So that's sort of how I justify it, you know. That's a really interesting take on it. (laughs) I had not considered that. Exploding the cat is another Sophie Kaner original, by the way. Oh, yes. I was like, there's a bomb in the cat. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin was like, Sophie, that's terrible. God. (laughs) I've seen a a lot of stuff in the the directions and in the the script about things that were included just to make people laugh or things that were just kind of like kooky. Um, I've heard uh, you really want to eat her for the piranha. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, things like that. Uh, what are your favorite like stage directions? What are the favorite directions that you've given people? Oh, that's a good question. 
Um, well, I mean, these are my favorites that Kevin has done because I don't write them. But there was that one recently. We tweeted it, though. It was um, really extremely pained noises. And I am sorry, Joshua. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really good parenthetical. I, a, lot, a lot of the time, those are really just to keep me entertained, especially on a day when, when I don't feel super confident about how the script writing is mm. going. Like, get something out of this. Uh, but sometimes they really do help me figure out characters. So like the, the Piranha one actually was one of the things that, like no joke, uh, over the course of writing um, Promised Land helped us really figure her out. Well, right. We didn't really <laughs> get the Piranha until the end of Promised Land. Like we didn't really have... I mean, that's kind of... but. In a way, how could you? Her character wasn't done yet, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, no, we didn't figure her out until the end. And then we were like, oh, she's a pain enthusiast. (laughs) That's what it is. She just likes it. And she doesn't really care whose it is. Hers, somebody else's, she doesn't care. (laughs) But it like took us until then to figure it out. Yeah. Um, But no, I mean, I think the other reason that you have so much fun with parentheticals is because your background is writing books. You know, mm-hmm. so it used to be that was all you had, what was on the page, and not how somebody was going to interpret it. Right. And you I know, d- with the voice and then sound effects. I do miss that. Sometimes in the rough drafts, the narration ends up way longer than it needs to be because I miss that. Right. No, yeah. it's because of your background. Yeah. Do you have any intention of continuing any standalone stories, or are those gone for good? I mean, we don't have any intention of continuing with the standalone stories. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're gone for good because like i don't really know how it's all gonna shake out you know because to be honest like this only occurred to us fairly recently we were like oh my god wait juno and the second citadel might not continue for the exact same length of time Mm -hmm. like they might but they might not like we have no idea right and we have no frame of reference we don't know how many seasons long either of those stories is going to be, let alone whether they will match up perfectly or whether we should prioritize matching them up perfectly. Because this is sort of a weird format for a show is, well, we just have two shows and you have to wait (laughs) for each one. Like, that's a very weird format. And everyone knows it happened by accident. Mm -hmm. Um, And everyone is very nice about just, you know, going along with it. So I don't know, it could happen that like, if one of those wraps up earlier than the other, then I don't know, do we go back to standalones? Do we pick up one of the old standalones and continue that? Do we go back to what we were doing for a little while, which is kind of treating them all as pilots and Mm -hmm. not knowing? (laughs) Rest in peace. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Treating them as as pilots and like not knowing whether they're going to continue or not. So TLDR, we don't know right now. We don't intend to continue with standalones, but anything could happen in the future. Right. I feel like the, one of the big reasons we ended up moving away from the standalones was we realized we had a ridiculous amount of stuff that we wanted to say um, with June, with second Citadel, like to the point where we were like, we can't, we couldn't just do these and get all this stuff done. Right. Um, so it's really a matter of, we just have so much more to say about these two that, uh, the, I don't think standalones would come back until we ran out of things to say right. on these two. Yeah. We do have a lot of ideas. Yep. <laughs> uh, do you guys have an end game in mind already? Or are you just kind of playing it by ear until you run out of ideas? 
both kind of like I mean for for Second Citadel I don't have any kind of real end game in mind like I we have some very big overarching ideas right. that we want to hit but I don't know if any of those would necessarily be the end for Juno I definitely have like an end game scenario in mind but I have little idea of how I want to get there. Um, and it's very, it's very expandable or contractible, you know, like it could take many seasons to get there or it could take few. Right. I really don't know. I think that most of the, the overarching mysteries we have not let ourselves get away with not having like plausible answers at the ready. Right. Like a- anything that we've introduced so far. Right. Like, yes, we do have a general idea of, of where it's going to go. Um, so you know, like, and, so like season, season two, we know, we know all the answers. Yes. We know all the answers to everything we've introduced Yeah, and you know, we know essentially what's going to happen in the rest of season two, you know, not, it's not all nailed down perfectly, but we, we basically know how it's going to shake out. Um, and we know as far as season three, a lot of what's going to happen in both series. Yep. Um, and some stuff we want to happen after that. And as I said, for Juno, I, I know how I'd like it to end and how I probably will one day go to Kevin and be like, all right, end it here. This is how. And then he's going to have to figure out how to get there. <laughs> right. And right now in that process, I'm currently at the stage of, I don't, I don't get it. I don't like the idea. And I'm sure that within six months, she'll yeah, have he'll me Yeah, come around. around. Yeah. So a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. So at what point did you know what you wanted to do with season two? I mean, what's interesting is that the, <laughs> the answer is uh, after we started writing season two, but before you all started hearing it. The uh, Kitty Cat Caper was was written uh, around the same time as like Angel of Brahma because I was so wiped out from writing Angel of Brahma. I needed a, I needed a quick, easy one. Right, Angel of Brahma was Angel of Brahma was one of the ones that was unbelievably difficult to write. Yeah, yeah. Um, for sort of obvious reasons. And we had we had broad views of what Kitty Cat Caper was going to be. It still started with a speech by a person named Ramses O'Flaherty. Um, it. Right. Uh, but there were all kinds of bizarre differences. Like, uh, like Pilot originally first appeared in that one, but it was not... It was a very different incarnation of Pilot, who yeah. was not in the running for mayor. No. That's not who it was. Yeah, Pilot was originally like a North Star executive, maybe? Yes. There was an early version of Pilot who was a North Star executive who has who had no personality whatsoever. None. Which and is... then we decided maybe we won't go with that. Right, which is why they got cut. And so we basically... We ended up taking uh, aspects of their fashion and applying them forward to the pilot Pereira we all know and <laughs> mourn. Um, R.I.P. But the uh, I miss them. Me too. <laughs> they were wonderful. But the but horrible but wonderful. But on. Oh yeah, my fave. But honestly, back then Ramses wasn't a full character either. So like right. the Ramses you know now is a combination of the original Ramses in the original pilot. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Because, well, Ramses is in part cannibalized from one of your old. Yeah. Novels. Only good part of that thing. Oh yeah. But he was fantastic. Yeah. And so, you know, we kind of were like, well, 
why don't we just take that character and have him? Because <laughs> you own him. So <laughs> so just like took him out of that book and put him here and then sort of... he He's less that now. Yeah, much Um. Much. Anyway, so like if you think about the structure of Kitty Cat Caper, like the, the mystery itself, the events of that are pretty self-contained. And so all of that stuff, the Maya King, the, the Pippa stuff, like stayed the same and it was the beginning and end that got completely like trashed and rewritten a bunch of times because they don't actually influence um the events of that particular story but they they influence everything that happens later Mm -hmm. um so even though that was written very early on and then we were like you know well into working on the beginning of season two and we were like walking down the street one day and i was like kevin i feel like we just don't like anything about the overarching plot um of season two and he just like looked at me with so much dread and he's in his eyes and then we were like i think we need to change the whole thing (laughs) yep (laughs) Uh, yeah and i I mean i'm very glad that we did but it was very painful um so yeah sometimes it happens that we kind of are like tearing things down at the last possible second right I think that that's part of the reason we try to stay ahead in the scripts. Right. Yes, right. Because even like, obviously can't give concrete answers for season two, but like for season one, uh, in the lead up to a uh, final resting place and Angela Brahma, I was in a panic adding lines to scene one of train from nowhere mm-hmm. to set up things about the miasma mystery that we had just completely left out. Right. Um, and needed a place to live. Well, and that was then we went through exactly the same process with Stolen City. Yep. That Stolen City is like, and I'm gonna not spoil anything here, but like that thing is packed with like clues. Yep. Some many of probably most of which have already come to fruition, which is why this is not really a spoiler. But just all of these last minute, like, oh my god, if this is gonna happen, we need to set it up right now, right now. Like, <laughs> we have to find a place for this. And it was like we had already rehearsed the episode. Mm-hmm. You know, and like the actors had already seen the script. And then we were like, oh my God, we have to add all this really important stuff to set up, you know, the rest of the half season. And then in some cases, what was coming Mm -hmm. even later, like stuff that hasn't even come out yet, um, that we were already like, oh my God, that has to be introduced as early as Stolen City if it's gonna, if it's gonna work. And so then like the actors came back for recording and they were like, oh, that's all new stuff. This seems like important stuff that we were not aware of. Surprise! Yeah, but you know they're good sports, <laughs> right? Or I, I guess to give like a like a, a summarized answer, it's that we we try to have the the big broad stuff planned out as early as possible, and we are always always wrong. We have never yeah. we have never once called a shot from the beginning of a season or a story arc. Really, uh, it's always been like we end up needing to adjust on the way there. And that's not with character arc stuff. Like we knew, we knew lots of things about uh, Juno's arc in season one as early as Dela wouldn't die, mm-hmm. Prince of Mars. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way to getting there involved so much, like being absolutely certain that the direction we were going was right, and then realizing that we made a wrong move five steps back, mm-hmm. uh, and going back and changing that. Yeah, so it's like we always have a plan in mind, but we often have to change things as we go. And so then like we're always making sure that everything does connect to what we have said. And those are our parameters, you know, Mm -hmm. like, okay, well, we've put these clues in. So we have to make sure that if we change it, it still connects all the dots, Mm -hmm. which is 
very frightening. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I can I can admit freely I'm in the middle of it right now, and every yeah. single time I'm in the middle of that process, I have no faith it's going to work out, and it always does. Yeah, it always does. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any clues that you laid for a mystery that like you didn't wind up tackling? Like you're leading down one trail and you decided not to go down that path at all? Uh, do we want Do we want to talk about uh, about remember with there was some stuff with Cecil and Min. Oh yeah! I forgot about it. that. Was sure that's not really a mystery. It's just like a detail that was just like a thing that I like. I mean, this was when we wrote the original Murderous Mass, right? Not not the, the Redux. Um, I was like, yeah, I think that like Cecil and Min like have a thing going on. Like they're having an affair or something. Oh God! Um, yeah, and so um, and so like we just like had some stuff in there, like. He said, like, he calls her Min and then he corrects himself and says mother. Right. Like, that, I think that's still in. That's still in there. In the original Murder's Mask. But then I think we, we literally just forgot about it. Yeah. I actually think that's what happened. It was, like, in the early concept when we talked about it and, like, Kevin remembered it as far as putting that line in. And then we just forgot and, like, didn't follow <laughs> up on it. And, like, there wasn't really room for it in the story as it turned out anyway. So, like... There you go. That's just a useless Easter egg. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, we've heard a lot of talk about Kevin's novel and his novel career and stuff like that. Will there be a Juno Steel novelization anytime soon or a second Citadel one? Uh, the, the answer the answer is yes. The answer is I very, very much want there to be. And there's one that is actually completely outlined uh, and progress has started on it. Um it, it turns out writing a show is hard and it takes some time. Yeah, it's very time consuming. And so it's 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 tough and it's sad because, yeah, we outlined it together and Kevin started writing it. Um, and, you know, like I've looked at various drafts of the beginning of it. But the unfortunate fact is that, you know, between Kevin also being a teacher, which is a full time job. Mm-hmm. And writing this show, which is a pretty full-time job, Mm -hmm. um, something that has no urgency to it, like writing a novel, like it always has to be bottom priority. priority. And so it just keeps not getting done. Right. Um, So it is kind of sad. And so like, you know, we can't say now whether, I mean, I think, I think it will happen. Yeah. I just don't know if we can say now, like, will it happen while the podcast is still airing because it that just may not be possible um, mm-hmm. unless a lot of things change or people just like hand us boatloads of money, which um, we're very open to if anyone has it. Right. But yeah, un- unless a lot of things change, it seems likely that the novel will always have to be postponed until after the show is over. But, but yes, one day, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're working on it slowly. Yep. How do you decide... Um... Like, what's the process for for casting and doing auditions? And how do you decide whether you're going to use, like, an actor that you've already got on staff rather than, like, looking for someone new? That's a good question. So, I mean, I think everyone knows that when we started the show, we didn't intend it to be a show. So we were just like, here's some friends who are good actors that I've acted with in the past who live nearby. <laughs> um, and that's sort of the core cast. You know, that's that's, like... Joshua and Noah and Kate. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and you know which is why they remain the core cast and they're the you know the most involved in the show and then it the way it sort of branched out from there was like you know i started just asking other people i had worked with in the past um you know cat and jason and stefano um and then after a little bit like when that well sort of ran dry and i was like i don't know any more people but noah does a lot of theater in boston and so um you know he has started helping me out as far as talent scouting and like um helping me find people to read for parts and so sometimes we'll have specific people in mind to read for certain parts and sometimes we just have no clue and we want a bunch of people to read um we don't do open auditions because you know we're just such a small production that it is a little scary to just have strangers so like it's Mm -hmm. always people who at least a friend of a friend you know Mm -hmm. Um, we don't really branch too far out the one big exception i think is um matthew zonzinger um who plays ramses and also sir damien and i saw him in a show you found him i found him yeah no i went to see a show with a friend and he was playing the lead um we went to see amadeus and he was playing salieri and he blew my mind and i was like I want him on my show <laughs> in in that voice that I have as a human person and um, found him on Facebook. And I was like, hey, I know this is weird. Do you want to be on my podcast? It's this thing, you know, no, I'll, I'll totally understand if you say no. And he miraculously was like, oh, I've heard of that. And I was like, you what? <laughs> <laughs> it was a very exciting time for me. And uh, yeah, so we had him like, read for a couple parts. I mean, one of the parts that we were really concerned about was Ramsey's because mm-hmm. we knew that it was going to be a really weighty part and we didn't have anyone in mind. And we were like, who can do this? Who can be, you know, 90 years old or however old he is. <laughs> and the answer was this 30 year old man. He does do a great job. And I was like, Oh my God, he's so versatile. Like let's have him. Well, we had him read for both. Um, for both Damien and Aram. Really? Uh-huh. Yes. Um, I didn't have one in mind. And at, his Aram was also great. At some point, like, I really, really want to release Oh, yeah, his. we should release his audition for Aram. Because it's, like, that is, is so different. It Aram could have been just a completely different creature. Yeah, totally. Do. Um <laughs> Yeah, no, we should, we should share that with people. Um, but, yeah, so I had him read for both because I knew those were both going to be weighty characters and I didn't know which one he would be better for and um, both were great but Damien was really special and Kevin had this very strong reaction where he I mean if you want to talk about it right yeah I mean like Damien Damien was a weird one to write in general because his uh, his external monologue is so so close to my internal monologue um, Damien is Kevin. That's, I'm not. I'm not that. I'm not that bad. Okay. <laughs> um. Uh. So, uh, basically, I remember I was listening to his audition of one of the monologues and having this very, very strong feeling about like, oh, this is this is what it feels like. This is exactly what it feels like. Um. And uh. And I just like. Uh, it's it, I'm very very happy that Sophie also really loved him as Damien because that I that I absolutely would have fought for 
Yeah, but I also loved him. Um, so, I mean, I generally always make the final decisions, but Kevin, I mean, obviously Kevin has a ton of input. Um, and sometimes it's just convenience. Um, and I also, whenever, I mean, not to call out the actors, but like whenever anyone acts on the show, that kind of is always like a further audition as far as I'm concerned, you know, because I'm kind of getting a sense of like, oh, what else might they be good for? And then I have that in the back of my mind, you know, and then it's this balancing act of like, you as the show progresses i try not to have people play too many main characters in a given series at least not in a row because i don't want it to be too confusing now obviously there are exceptions to that and also some people are versatile enough that they can get away with it um and that's fine and obviously you know like kate has played major characters in the same episode and it's been fantastic. Uh, but especially as we continue, I try to instead look for new people when I can. But I always have at the back of my mind, like, okay, what is in this person's toolbox and what might I bring them back for at another time? On the subject of Damien and Lord Aram, where did that story come from? Like, how long has that been like sitting with you? Did it just pop out of the blue? So I can only sort of answer this question because it will get into spoiler territory. But um, God, like a year, mm. I think a year ago, at least, is when we started thinking about it. And um, I mean, so Second Citadel, and I think this probably has become obvious, and I also think we've talked about it before, but Second Citadel has become our receptacle for like social issues that we can't explore in the universe because those things are kind of just fine in the universe. For example, really anything to do with gender and sexuality, like the Second Citadel, it's a much more conservative society. So we can explore issues that are a little bit closer to our own world than we can in the universe where like there's no point in really talking about the experience of being queer in the universe because like it's fine you're not othered it's mm. not really a thing but you can you can explore those things in the second citadel and i thought that an an interesting way to explore conservatism was also through like the interspecies human monster relationship thing um, and then, of course, it also ties into issues of sexuality because, you know, Damien figuring out that he's he's not straight and also is a scaly. <laughs> 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 yeah, so, like, those things are interesting to parallel and it adds another dimension um, and just could not have come up in the universe, so... I think that's about as much as I can say without spoiling mm -hmm. what's going to happen in that storyline. The other thing that I think is interesting about that plot line is that that's, uh, I think that's one of the only times that like when we've been talking about story stuff, you have come in and basically like said, I have this entire story arc. Like it's not, oh, yeah. it's not like I have beats I want to hit. It's this is where the characters start. This is where they are in the middle. And this is where they end. That's true. Um, and which like, really hoping i live up to that feeling <laughs> optimistic today uh but yeah it seems like you had a very thorough sense of that yeah yeah that was like a whole a whole concept that i wanted to explore which we you know are only part way done with again because we have the whole second half of the season to get to but um so a lot most of that is still to come but i did 
yeah, I did very much have like a whole a holistic idea of where I wanted to go with that. I was actually wondering, um, do you have any plans to tackle transgender issues in the Second Citadel? Or do you have any other issues that you really want to like tackle in this story in particular? Yes and yes. Yep. I would say I've been th- I've been thinking about this question uh, uh since this morning. Um and what I think I'm realizing is happens with us is that we end up coming up with uh characters and premises and at first they are divorced from a plot line, right? They are just out there in the ether. We have or we have like a we have like a bag of characters for the second citadel. Uh, that we want to add to the ensemble at some point, but they cannot all happen at the same time. There are too many. Uh, they probably would take many seasons to introduce them all. Um, the same kind of happens in the in the universe, right? Uh, that like we have characters either who like represent certain identities or just represent certain like conflicts that we think are interesting. Uh, that it takes us forever to get around to. Like for example, like. Uh, for a while, we had people uh, asking us about like a characters who use they them pronouns in the universe, and it was very very hard not to tell them like we had one, we had Pilot Pereira, and the script, the part of the script that they were in, not because of the they them pronouns, but just because of other storytelling things, like that part didn't work. Uh, so we need to wait for another opening to open up. Uh, so we have tons of issues and identities and types of characters that we want to explore, I think, especially in Second Citadel. Yes. And they're they're connected to characters just such that I have no idea which ones are going to become relevant when. Um, so, like, I am really excited to. I just have no idea when. Yeah, so, so we do have a lot of things, way too many things that we want to explore in the Second Citadel. Trans issues in particular are an interesting one to me um, because... That is something I really want to explore, and we will. Um, but that one is very tough in an audio drama context, especially because both of our series are fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if we if if our series were in the real world, or at least close enough to the real world, we would sort of already have the language to address that. But both of the series are fantasy. And so like we need to start from scratch with that. And also I think one of the reasons, at least for me, that I've found it tricky to figure out how to tackle trans issues appropriately is because in the real world, like so much of that has to do um, with like, um, like the visual aspect of it. Right. Visual presentation. Yeah. Like, yeah. Gender presentation and like, how a person looks to other people and is experienced by other people. And so like, how do you, you know, appropriately and gracefully tackle that in audio drama? And like, it's important to me to do that right and to be very careful about it. So it's definitely something that we will do. Um, But, you know, if anyone has wondered why it isn't something we really have done or at least not done explicitly because you know well and then this is the other thing is that like I can also like sort of have decided for myself that characters are are trans but it's like particularly in the universe like how would that even come up mm-hmm. you know in a world where that isn't an especial struggle and we're not gonna you know 
inappropriately discuss people's bodies. Right. And you, know? you end up like you end up walking dangerously close to dead naming. Like right. with a lot of ways of doing this. Right. Right. It's like how how could that, you know, appropriately even come up has has been an issue for me. And so like then all we're left with is like, well, they were in my head, but like that doesn't really count as representation or help anybody. Um, and, you know, we've definitely done a lot of cross-gender casting, which I know that a lot of people interpret as trans characters, and I'm happy for them to do that. And in a lot of cases, I agree with them. And yet, like, one might all, like, if you lean too hard on that, that might come across as inappropriate as well. Or, mm -hmm. you know, that, that might not be a good way to represent a trans person is by cross-gender casting, you know? Right. So... So it's a very, it's a very tricky thing. And that's right. why it has taken us a while to figure out what we want to do. It takes us a while and a lot of experimentation very often to, uh, to <clears throat> demonstrate an identity as opposed to like lecture about it. Mm -hmm. So a, a good example of this, I feel like is um, uh, like uh, ace characters, right? Uh, mm. We, there are none on the show right now based on what you all have heard. Uh, they're none confirmed based on what you all have heard. Uh, but we are all, we've only, uh, just recently started to figure out, okay, this is, this is actually how you demonstrate it without it being incredibly forced and awful. And part of the way that we do that is we try to talk to a lot of people who have these identities that we are, uh, that we're trying to represent. And we also just try to think about it hard and learn a lot about this, like method of storytelling before we step forward. Um, so there is certainly a way to tackle trans issues in the second Citadel. Yes. And once we crack that nut. Yes. And we will do it. Mm -hmm. Um, it just might take us a little bit of time, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a good parallel. Like the trans issues and ACE issues are both things where it's hard to establish those things, um, without talking about things that are invasive or inappropriate, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. that like they have no reason to come up and, um, you know, and, and we don't, yeah, we just, we don't want to be inappropriate. I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so figuring out how to gracefully do those things is very tricky. And I appreciate you actually taking the time and the energy to do it right. That's very important. Um, kind of tying into that and like the, the rules and the social situations, you've got a lot of world building that's come up in like the, in this past season, we've got all this stuff about the dome, the free domers, the war, uh, the the society of the second citadel, and like what that political situation is like. Uh, how do you go about creating these worlds? What's the world building look like? Well, some of it is Kevin will just like throw something in there and like <laughs> see if he can sneak it past me. Like the, like the fact the show's on Mars. Yeah. Like That's... the fact that it's on Mars. <laughs> I just snuck into that yeah, first script. Like, yeah, it's just on Mars. And I was like, all right, <laughs> I guess we're on Mars. <laughs> Not always, but a lot of the world building is yours. I guess. so. I don't yeah. know if I'm ready to say most of it, but a lot of it is yours. Mm. Um, and 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 sometimes it's just like plot necessity right um like a lot of the um like the prison related stuff yeah in hyperion city like that has a lot to do with plot necessity mm -hmm. i think 
you know, mm-hmm. like we needed to set up this particular situation. Right. So, you know, then ended up creating this whole prison to accommodate that. And then that told us something about the world. Right. Right. There's a, um, there's a, a tabletop game actually, uh, the called dungeon world, which I'm sure a bunch of people that are listening to this have heard of. I'm not pretending to have discovered it. Uh, that like I, it has this one rule for when you are running a game that I, I try to think about a lot, which is, uh, draw maps, but leave blank spaces. Hmm. Um, which I really, really like because a lot of the time when we are having discussions about like, okay, what's the answer to this question? What's the answer to this question? There are times when I have a pretty strong gut instinct towards, we actually can't answer that yet Mm -hmm. because, um, it might be like, because a, we don't need to right now. And B, it uh, might end up being specifically and particularly interesting for the central conflict or the plot of a script coming up. So, I mean, like, honestly, the fact that the domes are as significant as they are, period, was kind of just a... Originally, it started a plot contrivance and Data Wouldn't Die to keep everybody stuck in Old Town. Oh, yeah. Um. And, like, the thing is that once you... So, like, in order to establish stakes, you make things up. And then once you have established them, like, we get to season two, we look back, we say, all right, what toys do we have out of the toy box? Uh, We have this dome out. Uh, What kinds of interesting things can we do with it? And that is one of the things that Kevin says a lot, which I think is brilliant, which is what, what toys do we already have out of the toy box? Like, what have we already established? You know, without inventing anything new, what do we already have that we've brought up that we can play with? Um, And then sometimes, like, we'll just surprise ourselves by, like, zooming out, Mm -hmm. you know? And I I don't want to say anything spoilery here, but, like, sometimes we're like, oh, my God, we've just been thinking about this on a really small scale. Like, what if we, you know, zoomed out some orders of magnitude? What would we see? And then we, Mm -hmm. then we have, like, a whole open playing field. And Kevin has drawn maps. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, Has drawn physical maps. Yep. Um, Um, But yeah, I mean, one day Kevin like sat down and drew a map of the Second Citadel. Yep. Like surrounding nonsense. Yep. um, Which was very helpful. And then, you know, we were like, oh, well, what's over here? What's over there? And like Mm -hmm. that started us thinking in new directions of like, oh, this is what we could do like seasons down the line. Which is pretty cool. And then I think maybe you spilled tea all over it or something like that and you had to redraw it. No, that was Ryan. Okay, Ryan spilled tea all over it so you had to redraw it. Uh, But yeah, no, we should at some point release at least some portion of of the map. I would love that. Um, Both of these series deal a lot with mental illness this season. A lot more than the previous season. Uh, Was that a Mm. conscious decision on your guys' part? Or was that just kind of organic? It was partially conscious. It was partially out of out of necessity, I guess. Okay, because in the in the Juno stories, if we're looking for a like central vehicle of progression for him, right? Uh, a central conflict to chew over. Uh, in season one, he had kind of an he had an external conflict to to take that place, right? He had Nereev to think about, uh, and in terms of like his own personal development. Um, and in season two where he's kind of trying to find himself, uh, the the search has to be more internal. Mm-hmm. So I've been a lot more explicit about, um, with each episode, I, I try to make sure that by the, the end of the episode, I have a good sense of how he has changed in some way. That um, the, di- the, the binary of, 
I think sometimes stories about people who have depression become too binary and evaluations of them become too binary because it's just, well, are you better or aren't you? Mm-hmm. And it's that's if if that's how you're summarizing better, you're you're never going to be better because you're never stacking up to your own expectations. Um, so what I've tried to do is with each episode considering Juno's own personal arc, it's been all right. He has hordes of individual demons, of personal demons to fight, and at the end of an episode, maybe he does not learn how to beat a demon, but he at very least learns it there. It's there. Um, so that he can identify it and notice when he's doing it in the future. Uh, the first time I feel like I ever did that successfully was in Day That Wouldn't Die at the end of that episode when he and Mick are talking about the fact that he takes on everything by himself. And ever since, I have tried to make it the case such that if he does try to take on something by himself, he recognizes either before or after the fact that he's doing it, recognizes that it's probably a problem. Other people call him out on it too. Because the other thing is that recognizing your own demons is not the same as beating them. Uh, and a lot of it is about making the same mistakes over and over and over again mm-hmm. uh, until you realize why those mistakes are getting made. Uh, so I think if the second seasons had a lot more to do with mental health concerns, um, it's, I mean, to be, uh, to be transparent, it's both been because I've been thinking about them a lot more. Yeah. Um, and it's also been because when trying to think of a personal character arc, for Juno in each episode, figuring out what aspect of himself he's going to fight and have a partial loss, partial victory mm-hmm. um, ends up being the most interesting to me anyway. And I, I mean, I think that it will continue to be about that. And I feel like, I feel like the Juno series, like what it has become is like the long game is, it's a story about, uh, you know, a, a lady learning to manage his depression and mm-hmm. like, it's, I think it probably is really frustrating to people sometimes yep. to be like, what? I thought he was better. Like, what is he doing? He's doing this thing again. But like, Kevin is trying to make it <laughs> really realistic, I think. Mm. Juno keeps screwing up. He's going to keep doing that. And I think, I think he will get better at managing it. But it's one day at a time. And like, he often will have his final monologue and be like, yes, I figured it all out. And this is how it is. And he's wrong half the time. <laughs> right. You know, just because something is in his final monologue doesn't mean that he's right. It just means that's what he thinks today. Right. And, but he's really trying. Right. And I think that like for, you know, for, for a lot of us, if either you're just, your life situation is tough or your, your brain is making it tough on you. Yeah. Um, it is a very common experience to have these eureka moments of like, Oh, this is my problem. Yeah. Now I get it. And like, you could not get better without those eureka moments. Uh, even though like 80% of them are dead wrong. Uh, they are so, so, so wrong. Uh, but you need to have them for that 20%. Yeah. Um, mostly wrong. (laughs) Yes. Um, and, and so are many or most of the people he talks to. Right. And a lot of the people he talks to will give him, their advice or their perspective on like this is what you do this is how you live life you know there's usually a grain of truth in in what they say and they're often also largely wrong Mm -hmm. um you know and sometimes he takes what they have to say to heart in the second citadel i mean probably the biggest mental illness thing going on in the second citadel is damien which i think that did blossom out of plot necessity I think. Right. No, it did. Yeah, because we we were like, how 
do we get from scene to scene in this story when we don't have a narrator? Like, what are we going to do? Right. It has basically two characters, no narrator. Right. So we, like, knew how we wanted Knight of the Crown, Lord of the Swamp to go. Mm -hmm. But we were like, what in the world is going to get us from scene to scene? Like, we don't have a narrator. And then... Correct me if I'm wrong about this being my idea, but I think it was my idea that I was mm-hmm. like, what if it's, well, I I think it was my idea because I remember the, the germ of this. I was mm-hmm. like, what if it's like in Fiddler on the Roof? Yep. Um, and what if he's like Tevya and mm-hmm. he just talks to God right. all the time and he talks out loud. Right. And just like, that's what he does when he bu- he's by himself. He talks to God. And um, and then that's where we were like, oh, we can come up with a whole lore. Like, who is his God? And like, you know, what's... Right. Then, you know, built out the world that way. But we didn't even think of that until we had that device. And then I think the only way Kevin was able to justify him doing that was if he was a, a, an anxious wreck. Right. I was thinking and reading a lot about... Um like historical like cases and precedents for obsessive compulsive disorder at that point. Oh yeah. And about how through a lot of history that may well have been masked by like, you know, uh, daily religious ritual and things like that. Mm. And like, you know, even, even today, a lot of it ends up manifesting as, you know, uh, people who think that their God is telling them to do whatever specific behavior or think whatever specific thought it is that they're thinking. Um, so I was thinking about that uh, around the time that you brought up the idea of what if he talks to his God uh, and eventually from some experimentation, it kind of clicked for me like what what if he's talking to his God, but but whether or not his God is listening is not actually important, mm-hmm. right? Like it's just he is really just examining his own anxieties. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the one way in which uh, Damien's external monologue and my internal monologue are very different, which is that Damien's always talking to St. Damien instead of Sir Damien. Uh, whereas I'm pretty much just talking to me. <laughs> St. <Saint> Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> what's your favorite moment in the podcast and what's your least favorite? Ooh. I'm going to jump on least favorite first so you can't do it. No, we're going to have the same one, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I know. Well, then you've got to come with a new one. Ugh, okay, go ahead. Okay. My least favorite moment uh, still is at the end of Prince of Mars part one. Yeah, that's is this yours. Uh, the, the part where, uh, Juno forces a kiss on oh. Alessandra and it's just like, yeah, we would never write that now. And he, and he would never do and it. He would never do that. Right. It's like, uh, it's, it's horrific. The entire, <sighs> the entire sequence is built around. I really liked the idea of him learning a move from Nureyev. And I mean, to be, to be honest, like I have, I have learned a lot about the world in the past, like two years, uh, and like, uh, and grown a lot as a person. And so at the time genuinely did not super understand that there was a, even in our fantasy world, there was a major difference in social implication when you change it from a man doing it to a man. You know what though? I don't, I don't think that. It is, like, I actually think it's sort of the same as far as they're concerned. Mm-hmm. Like, 
I don't think it's any worse for him to have done it to Alessandra than if he did it to a man. Oh yeah, it's yeah. just the brief. It's just like us experiencing it. That's it's what totally I mean. With, yeah. Within within their world, it doesn't make a difference. Within our world, it's right. like it it's comes like messed up. It comes with connotations you cannot escape. Yeah, and so we would never do that now. But like, I didn't stop you. Like, I thought that was fine at the time, and mm. now I like it. Ugh, like, it makes me want to shrivel up and die when I hear that. It makes me so uncomfortable. But well. No, it was partly the Nureyev thing, but also it was that we were in such a rush to establish him as bisexual. Yes, like, yes, you're right. That was that was the reason Alessandra existed. Yeah, to fact, start. Because we were like, you know, our first idea was we need to have this, um, you know, noir detective, but he's going to be bisexual. And then we did Murderous Mask, and then we were like, damn it, everyone's going to think that he's gay. Like, because no one ever thinks of bisexuals, right? right? And so we have to immediately introduce um, a woman for him to have as a love interest so that everyone will understand that he's bisexual. And that's the reason she exists. And then we, like, built the story around that. Like, you know, we were like, okay, so he needs to have a female love interest. So what if she's another private eye? Well, how would that work? Okay, they're maybe they're both working for two halves of a couple. Right. Um, which could have gone in a very different direction and was like almost about to. And then we were like, oh, one, is, one of them's dead. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so we like were in such a gosh darn rush to be like, he's bi, he's bi, he likes girls. Um, that like we just rushed to that right and it was like totally inappropriate right we forced um, it he forced it, it yeah was... we forced it he forced it and it's it's pretty upsetting to listen to and i super don't stand by it but like now it exists in the canon and we can't just rewrite every episode <laughs> all right sophie I'm, sophie i'm gonna pitch something to you every season right we, we just rewrite redo the next one right so that by the end we have a completely new canon yeah that won't be incredibly annoying <laughs> Um, ugh, I don't know what my least favorite. You just said way more about that one than I did, so yeah. I kind of feel like that's a pass. You guys can have the same one if you want. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we can. We double Thank hate Thank you. We double hate it. Yeah, we hate it very much. Okay, and- what's your most favorite? Oh, okay, cool. Put me on the spot. I will. Um, Second Citadel, it is uh, absolutely 100% end of Lady of the Lake. Uh, from This isn't a moment so much as seven minutes <laughs> but from uh queen mira's last letter on uh the combination of the the script there and their performances and ryan's music and like just both remembering writing that and moments of character coming out that i had not expected um and also just like i i try i try very hard not to cry at my own show because that would make me a goober but sometimes you're just a goober and you can't do anything about it. Uh, that's one of those. That's one of those moments for me. That gets me every time. Mm. Um, now, well, I think of my second one. Sophie's gonna say hers, and I'm gonna nod encouragingly. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Well, then I'll try and think of one from Second Citadel. Ugh, I. The part I really love in Lady of the Lake, though, this sucks because I actually really love my performance. <laughs> But it's not really, like, the fact of my performance. It's just, like, it wouldn't really function without everything that surrounds it. Uh And I am talking about my performance as a dog monster. So, like... (laughs) Was a little worried you meant Village Girl Emily. No, it's not my performance as Village Girl Emily. It's it's the moment when, um, when Angelo carries Nimue. Yeah. 
out of the hut. Oof. And like, and woof. And like she howls as she's being taken away. It's not the fact that it was me. It's just the fact that like, you know, it sounds like she knows what's happening. And like you feel the connection between Nimue and Vivian. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and that all of those characters arcs have culminated in that moment in that way. I feel really emotional about it, you know, because it's so many things. It's like, it's Caroline feeling so much for this man just wanting to live his life the way he wants to live it, which is the same thing that she wants. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, life has made it so difficult for him and that people find it so difficult to respect that he just wants to live the way he wants to live. So that's her part of the arc. And then, you know, for Damien, it's like struggling to understand, you know, can can a monster be like a human and his fears surrounding that and for angelo he just like he just wants to help everyone and fix everything and Mm -hmm. in that moment he can't Mm -hmm. and you know it's the end of vivian's life and like nimoe is never gonna see him again and so like they all they all culminate in that moment in that way and it's very very sad um, so I am very, I am very proud of that moment. Not just because my performance is a sensational. <laughs> Best dog actor 2017. Best dog actor 2017. I will fight for that. You'll, you'll fight other actual dogs. <laughs> other actual dogs. Um, yeah, no, what's your favorite universe? I thought about it. Um, I've figured it out. And so this is actually from a production standpoint, because from like a how it actually turned out standpoint, I, I just can't. Uh, but from a production standpoint, the uh, last scene of Kitty Cat Caper, um, like with Ramses and Juno oh. in Halcyon Park, actually, I've gone back and listened to that so many times. And it's I'm, so funny. It was I know. easy. I, I know, but I'm... the easiest part of the episode. I know, but I'm just now realizing that part of the reason for that is like, um, you know, if, if you listening to this are like a fan of the show and you think it sounds like we always know what we're doing and we're we don't first off but i like i say that because i report i report feeling that way about things that i like right um it's worth knowing that as you go off to make your own stuff that like second album syndrome is very very real oh god yeah like once we finished season 1 for a while i was like i was completely paralyzed by like we have a plan for season 2 and i'm so excited about it and i don't want to do anything else besides write this show and what if I never make anything that good again? Mm-hmm. Like, what if what if this is it? Uh, and listening to the recording of um, the last scene of Kitty Cat Caper was the moment when I went, "Oh no, we're we're good. We're <laughs> we're gonna do it again." And in fact, I think this is gonna be better. Uh, and you know, whatever. One of the things that I am happiest with about season two thus far, and as it continues is that like I definitively like it more than season one, which yeah, is which is hard for me not to like romanticize past projects. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, it's the struggle is real as far as mythologizing season one. Mm-hmm. Like it's really hard not to think of everything that happened and everyone who was introduced in season one as being like 
as being it, as as being the most important and being the, mo- the weightiest. But the fact is, this is an ongoing show. You know, right. it's like, it's just that that was our canon for a while. And after we wrapped up the first season, we all sat around and listened to it a whole bunch. So like, it's in our heads. That doesn't make it better. Um, <laughs> that being said, it is really hard to tear myself away from saying that my favorite all-time moment on the show is um, the end of Angel of Brahma. Mm-hmm. Um I said earlier that I try not to cry at our show. Yeah. Sophie makes no such No, I, I cry about it all the time. Like, sorry, I like it. Like, you know, <laughs> I demanded a story that I wanted because I would like it. And then everyone around me enabled me. And yeah, I like it. Like, <laughs> I'm allowed to cry about it. Um, and so this is not my final answer. It's, it's hard for me to tear myself away from that final monologue of Angel of Brava and... Juno talking about Nereev and Joshua's performance is really fantastic. And how much would you say it makes you feel? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a really great performance, and it's the music. I mean, mm-hmm. wow, the music that Ryan wrote for for that episode is so wonderful, and I do just listen to the music a lot. But if I put that aside, I really love the end of Promised Land Part 2. And I really love the angry music that's just Juno deciding to stay alive Mm -hmm. when he's just mad (laughs) Mm -hmm. about it. And nothing, like, nothing is happening action-wise. He's literally just sitting there. But it's, it's like, the high point of the episode. It's where all the action and all the drama is, but it's completely internal. Mm-hmm. And I really, really love that. And then at the end of that episode, right after that, and he's, like, lost all his blood and it's being, like, filtered back into him. And then Alessandra comes over and is, like, bandaging him. And she says, I'm proud of you. <laughs> And maybe it's just because, like, I want Kat to say that to me all the time. <laughs> it just feels very good. Yeah, that sounds very calming. Yeah, like, hearing Kat Buckingham say, I'm proud of you, Steel. I'm like, oh, thank you. Maybe I'm going to be okay. <laughs> um, and he's, like, he's just so, like, he's so vulnerable. But, like, he did it, you know. He survived. And she says, like, that's the hardest thing there is. And her performance is beautiful and his performance is beautiful. And, you know, what Kevin wrote for them to say is beautiful. And, and, and I think that's also that is emotional because I feel like that's Kevin talking through the show to people. I feel like he does that sometimes. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm crying like I was gonna, (laughs) um, you know, Kevin talking through the show to people and saying, I'm proud of you for surviving because that's the hardest thing there is. And I think that's just terribly meaningful. Um, so I, I really love, I'll, I'll stick with that. That'll be my favorite moment on the show so far. That is wonderful. Can we ask you? Yeah. Like, obviously I want to know what your favorite moment is, but I actually really would love to know what your least favorite moment is too. Oh, God. Um, probably my favorite is, um, from, from Second Citadel, is Damien doing the whole swooning song and dance about falling in love with Aram, because 
I the, the music is fantastic. The the whole setting the stage is. is fantastic. You can hear him like throwing himself against trees and <laughs> <laughs> I think he actually sings one of the lines. He does. <laughs> I think the way Yeah, yeah, he says his violet eyes and like Matthew's a singer, so like I think it just came out of him. <laughs> um yeah, no. It, it's right. just such a beautiful scene, and it makes me like laugh my head off every time, and it's wonderful. <laughs> what a nerd scaly he is. <laughs> and I love him dearly. Yes, we do as well. <laughs> uh, and I don't know if anything's gonna tap the uh, the the confession in the doorway at the end of uh, uh, Final Resting Place. Yeah, that was a sad time for all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've got a weakness for those scenes. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's always hard not to just, you know, because it's like the, those moments are like when everything, like everything has been leading up to that. So like, it's really hard for that not to be your favorite mm-hmm. moment because like it has all the weight of everything that came before it, you know. Um, and like, yeah, uh, so like, I mean, I'm such a, I don't mean of the show, but like in general, I'm such a like, fangirl of a person you Mm. know and i feel like that often comes out in the show because like it's all of like it's all of those moments that we lean heavily on and you know it's just like oh people confessing their love through doors (laughs) and like maybe they'll never see each other again (laughs) yeah no i eat i eat that up of course it's on the show (laughs) so i totally feel that and ryan wrote some really good music for that and i like had a very tall order for him which this is i I do the same thing to ryan that i do to kevin which is like i want this impossible thing make it happen (laughs) and then he does um and so for that moment in final resting place i was like i want you to somehow you know make me an amalgamation of juno's theme and nureyev's theme but make it beautiful and sad go and he did Um, and I love that you can hear both of their themes in it, and it's beautiful. That's right. Ryan, does, Ryan does not get enough credit for the the process aspect of this. Like, yeah. there are so many times when we just throw at him, like, "Hey, there's this scene that's like kind of working. Do you think you could put together like a couple minutes worth of music? Could you just a, fix the scene for me? Because like a, I'm having trouble sound designing <laughs> in a day. So like, uh, I will have what I want. The the theme that plays during the fight with Miasma in the background there, it was it was silent originally. Right, and it sounded like garbage and like the day before you needed it yeah. we sent him that section yeah and he came up with this like amazing atmosphere and in one night he comes back with he comes back with like six minutes of like really good atmospheric yeah. organ that like uh is as actually it's one of my favorite tracks on the season one soundtrack i recognize why people don't tend to listen to it through it all the way because it'll make your hair stand on end <laughs> um but I'm just, I'm so impressed that he put that together in like a day. Yeah. Ryan has a lot to do with like why some of the moments land the way they do. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And uh, I do have my, my least favorite moment for Second Citadel. Oh, oh yes. I okay. Know. The the moment where Angelo is doing the whole like, oh, I accept you as a warrior and as a woman, you may kiss me now. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> for similar reasons as the Alessandra thing or it was just hokey. And that and because like... It, the sort of thing I would have totally written like 10 years ago so like ah yeah I, I recognize that moment <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. it's hokey it's I mean Caves of Discord in general is like quite heavy handed yeah I think like I don't I don't I don't hate it but like it's not one of my favorites and like I think the actors did 
great right. and like really established the characters um with what we gave them but like it's also probably one of my least for for uh, for it's it's probably my least favorite of the second citadel episodes yes it's definitely my least favorite of the second uh, which episodes. like i i really love the the characterization stuff it introduces yeah like, i think the actors are fantastic in it right and i think they're the saving grace of it um because yeah it's like i i think Earnmark that moment you point out is a good example of right it just being heavy-handed in general there's probably a lot of that that's like us working out our guilt over playing ex- essentially exactly <laughs> the same scene straight <laughs> a year prior <laughs> it's a very guilty episode <laughs> is what it is your others are a lot stronger i like to think yeah. so you've grown thank you how does your experience with gender kind of affect how um, the the series approaches gender? Um, I mean, I think it's probably noticeable that it has changed a lot. So, like, it it was it was a lot more straightforward at the beginning, especially if you start with the original Murderous Mask and work your way forward. Mm-hmm. Because, and I think we mentioned this before, like the thing about Juno calling himself a lady was a joke the first time it was just like it was just um oh a lady's gotta have her secrets ladies gotta have her secrets yeah and and alessandra says you know well a lady walked into you know restricted area restricted area after hours and now a lady's gonna go home Mm -hmm. um and but but that's already wrong because if we wrote it now he wouldn't say a lady's gotta have her secrets he'd say a lady's gotta have his secrets yep so it was a joke when it first happened. And then it came up again in Day That Wouldn't Die. Um, I'll have when, what the lady's having. Yeah, Mick says, I'll have what the lady's having. And then after that, um, you know, and then we just left it in. It was just like a thing that kept coming up. And then by Midnight Fox, this was one of those moments. Yeah, let's talk again about how I'm a visionary. Um, <laughs> let's talk again about how you're intolerable. It's been covered at length. All right. <laughs> Let's go back Everyone to Everyone vi- has talked about how I'm intolerable. Let's go back to Visionary then. Okay, so we'll go back to Visionary. Um, this was one of those moments where I was like, oh, this is what we're going to do. Because in Midnight Fox, um, they have the whole, like, uh, gentleman-lady conversation. And I was like, oh, what if he just doubles down on being a lady? He just is a lady. And, like, he's going to stick with that. And Kevin's like, there's no way we can execute that. And I was like, no, we have to do it. I've decided. He's a lady. And this is how it is. Yep. And... As usual, Kevin made it work in that conversation, in that fight. And then from then on, it really was canon that, like, that's how Juno thinks of himself. And I think at that time when I made that decision, I didn't really think that much about what what it meant. And that was really at the... That was only at the very beginning of me starting to think about my gender, though. Because when we started this show, I wouldn't have considered myself non-binary. Mm. And I wouldn't have called myself a boy ever. Mm. And I wouldn't have been so flexible about pronouns. And all of that has changed in the time. I mean, frankly, the penumbra has changed my view of gender is what happened. Yeah, no, same. You know? And um, so it has it has forced me to grow. And then I played Chance, mm-hmm. which I don't love that performance, but it doesn't really matter. Like, it was, uh, it became a way for me to express my gender and to start to think about it a little bit more. And now... Now I actually relate a lot to Juno in terms of like gender presentation versus gender identity and just like sometimes it's contradictory and that's fine and like 
I'll let you know how I'd like to be treated and how I'd like you to refer to me. And it doesn't really matter to me whether it makes logical sense or not. It's just, it doesn't matter. And so like, as I have continued on that journey, we have become more, ad uh, no, adventurous is a bad word. Um, progressive yep. and good, I think, about how we address gender on the show and how we think about it. And it um, has made it easier to include characters with they, them pronouns. And it has, um, it's, it's pushed us further down the road as far as gender bending. I mean, I'll tell you another thing, which is when we started the show, we would both have been really uncomfortable with the idea of, um, Juno wearing a wedding dress. Yep. And, you know, now who we are now, it's non-negotiable. He has to. Right. And so like, uh, I mean, I think. Your your struggle over the word adventurous is an interesting one because I think what this show has done for me too, even in like writing it and needing to uh, like and needing to follow up on your visionary moments, um, <laughs> it's part it's part of the reason that I have become so intolerant of the defense that sometimes come up comes up when absolutely no like you know queer identities or identities that have anything to do with uh even remotely diverse perspectives come up when people say you know well it's just not relevant to the story i have gotten extremely frustrated with that answer because uh it is always the answer that i say to myself immediately before i figure out how it is mm. and it's never very hard uh it's like there are there are some, there's a difference between it's not relevant and there are actual like mechanical and structural challenges in the way such that if I do this, it will dilute other things or it will uh, confuse other things, which since we're working in the audio medium, we already, we already talked a little bit about how that gets confusing with like uh, ACE and trans issues. But like my first reaction when Sophie brought the dress to me, if I'm being real was like kind of a homophobic one. Mm -hmm. It was a pretty strong, like, no, he wouldn't. Uh, until I put it in the script and realized like, like, oh, he can, yeah. he, he just can and it's right. fine. Uh, and that process of normalizing it through this world has honestly been super transformative for me yeah. too. Internalized homophobia is a hell of a drug. Yep. You know, and it's like, we can be as gay as we want to be, which is very gay, <laughs> you know, but like, we still like, we have to fight it all the time like things that we just have like that we're just like knee-jerk uncomfortable with mm -hmm. um and we do fight it and that's why and, and you can just plainly see that in the things that we put in the stories as we've continued you know it's like if you compare what's actually in the original murderous mask and you know prince of mars and then the way characters um exist now uh mostly i i'm mostly talking about gender presentation here because i think that's one of our biggest journeys here that and like just um like feminist issues i think also yes. we've come a long way with yeah you know and like it it doesn't matter that i'm a woman like i i was very bad with these things you know and like i'm really working on it and i think you can probably see our journey mm -hmm. um but that's why you know things happen like that moment with alessandra for example um 
and I'm sure all sorts of other things that like, I can't really stand by them anymore. You know, right. the things that we wrote in those early scripts and yet they're part of the canon now. So we kind of do have to stand by them. Right. But we, we just need to prove ourselves, you know, prove that we're getting better and we're being more thoughtful about these things. But like, but the show really helps us grow because then, you know, it's like we examine our knee jerk response of like, no, he can't be wearing a dress. And then we're like, okay, wait, yes, he can. And he's going to look great in it. Yep. We put him in the dress and then that normalizes it for us because we just put it into this world and we're like, oh, look at him. He looks so great. We love it. And like, then we go back into the world and we're like, yes, show me more men in dresses. This is what I want. You know, right. but like we needed to do it for ourselves and normalize it for ourselves first. So mm -hmm. it's actually a very helpful journey for us as creating the show. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for doing that, because I've seen the same stuff in, in fan fiction and the fandom response in my own writing and my approach to stuff. Like, it's really, really helpful. Thank you for like being a, a, a one of the ones that gets the ball rolling in that direction. <laughs> <laughs> I will not say you're welcome because that is inappropriate. Um, but we are trying. Yeah, we're trying. You know? I'm. I'm really. I'm really glad that that it's coming across that way. Yeah, I'm glad, and like I, I hope that that people can look at the canon and see the progression, you know, and and see that we're working on it, and that we know we still have work to do, and we'll try to get better. You know, it's a process. Um, and try not to hold the early stuff against us too much, mm -hmm. you know, when, when we just weren't there yet. I mean, it was two years ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lots has happened. And you've grown so much like in this, in the way you've put your story together. It's so amazing to look at it now. Thank you. Thank Emma. you. That's so nice. And to our travelers, we will be returning with an episode at some point, And I'm not going to tell you when, um, but we're really excited to share it with you. And we hope you enjoyed having some of your questions answered. And we'll talk to you soon.